the sturgeon refinery issue is uh, back in the news. As Alberta's premier now suggesting that the province might look at trying to sell its stake in the uh, troubled project. Now, I say trouble. I mean, you know, the sturgeon refinery is up and running and doing what it's supposed to do. But I think, you know, troubled in the sense that it took a long time to build this. But more to the point, the cost of building this kept rising and rising along the way. And Alberta's economic financial exposure to this continued to grow along the way. So this is really billions of dollars uh, that Alberta has, has had to put into this to make sure that this got over the finish line. So, yes, you know, when people say it would be good if we could refine more product here, we're doing that. But has it been worth the cost? And now moving forward, what can Alberta do to try to maybe recoup some of that or at least mitigate or minimize the the impact of all of that exposure? Uh, So Chris Varco in the Calgary Herald today with the story, uh, an interview with the premier where she says, quote, I would love to sell it. Speaking of Alberta's stake in the uh, Sturgeon refinery. So one alternative the premier wants to explore is selling its 50% stake in the refinery. She says, quote, I wish the deal had been done differently. I've asked my deputy minister of energy to look into it. Can we get a different type of approach where some private sector operator will buy this from us, take it off our hands, and we can guarantee them a long-term supply of bitumen? It's just exposed us to too much risk. Well, I think that's that's a fair point. So what, what can we do or what, what should we at least learn from, from all of this? Joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Richard Masson, chair of the World Petroleum Council of Canada, also with the School of Public Policy and executive fellow uh, at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Richard, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Rob. Um, so what do you make of this idea, first of all, the, the merits of this idea or just how plausible it would be to sell off this stake? Well, let me just uh, add to your introduction by saying I was the CEO of the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Commission for five plus years, and I was the lead Alberta person on the uh, refinery for a number of those years. So it's um, pretty tough for us to get out of the deal that we're in. Uh, it, the deal that we're in came about because of that notion that you talked about in the introduction that said we want to refine more of the raw products in Alberta rather than shipping them, you know, don't want to be hewers of wood and drawers of water kind of thing. So so Premier Stelmack at the time did an RFP to look for private sector companies who would be willing to build a refinery. And the deal that resulted came from that initiative. So if you think about it, what you were really saying at the time was, we know that there's a lot of bitumen here. We will incent you to build a refinery. And in order to do that, the province had to take on a lot of risk. And so the deal had to really be strong on the province accepting the risk and not being able to wiggle out of it. Because if it looked like the province would be able to walk away, then the private sector companies at the time wouldn't have been able to finance the project. As a result, it is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to get out of that deal. And so that's the situation we face today. What does that tell us about, I mean, was there a market case to to build additional refining capacity in the first place in Alberta? We have a considerable amount to begin with. There's there's an entire North American integrated market to consider. What about that side of it? Well, just so people understand, I mean, in Edmonton, there were three big refineries. And you would think if there was a market case to expand refining, one of those three would have been the ones to do it, right? They already had infrastructure. 
they could expand at lower cost. So there was both the idea that we wanted to have more refining, but also the idea that we wanted to bring in more competition. And in order to do that, you have to build a standalone greenfield project, which is more expensive than, than you know expanding an existing refinery. So if the, the project had come in on its original budget at $5 billion and it worked properly at the beginning, um, things probably would have looked pretty well. And there was a plan for phase two and phase three to grow it to 150,000 barrels a day of bitumen. But it didn't turn out that way for a whole bunch of reasons. And so, you know, the look back on it is hard still to, you know, it's only been operating for a few years. You know, over the next decade, how will it look? Um, these, these things are yet to play out. So as mentioned, so it's 2021 when the Alberta government uh, acquired a 50% equity stake or share in this it's refinery. So this went through the, the uh, APMC, as mentioned, you, you were there. So what can you tell us in about how did it get to that point? Why was, why was that a necessary step? The original deal um, was a partnership between Northwest Upgrading, Northwest Refining, and Canadian Natural Resources. Northwest Refining was a very small company without a big balance sheet. And so the two were a 50-50 partnership that operated the refinery. There were a bunch of safeguards built into the original deal that said if operating costs got too high, some of that would have to come out of the cash flow of that partnership. Or if turnaround costs, when you do your major turnaround costs are too high, that would come out of the, the funds that go to the partnership. And it could lead to that partnership going bankrupt. And if the operator of the refinery goes bankrupt, you've got big trouble. So so part of the challenge of the original deal was you had a, um, a financial operator who didn't have enough backing for all the commitments it took on. And so Alberta was in this kind of exposed situation where if they push too hard on this, it could result in the partnership going under, and that increased the risk of Alberta having to pay tolls um, because they had essentially said, we will pay the tolls no matter what. It's a, it's a complicated deal. I don't think we'll ever do anything like it again, but it's part of the challenge of the different risks that were involved in the original structure. Since we have it, and you know it got complete, it's it's operating, it's there. I, I mean, are we at least benefiting from having it? Uh, there's some hope or expectation that we'll see uh, higher Canadian crude prices this year, a smaller differential. But that was kind of the argument, the old bitumen bubble, that if we've got a big differential, refining product can help us bridge that gap. And right now we export about 1.5, 1.6 million barrels a day of bitumen from the province in the form of bitumen without being upgraded at big upgraders. So this was processing 50,000 out of you know 1.5 million barrels a day. It's a small help. So the part of our challenge now is differentials of late have been $18, $19 a barrel um, because of Trans Mountain pipeline delays and things like that. When the differential's wide, if it goes out to, you know, it's been as high as $30 in the last year, then there's a chance for this um, refinery to make money because, you know, they're taking very cheap bitumen and turning it into ultra-low sulfur diesel, which has got good value. But if what happens when Trans Mountain starts up, what people expect is the differential's going to come back down into the $12 range, then this refinery won't be able to make money. But the funny part about it is it's a hedge because in the world where differentials are narrow, Alberta's making much, much more money on the bitumen that gets sold from royalties. Mm -hmm. And so incurring a small, relatively small um, cost for this refinery 
um, can be absorbed in that world. So, so this is the part of the whole argument for putting it in place was, yes, it would help make sure the differential was a little bit narrower, and it's, it acted as a hedge against um, differentials for the province. Well, that seems like that's that's the bigger objective is let's reduce that differential, um, you know. And so where does that leave us if we get to a point where we are exporting more, where we do close that gap? What does it mean for the viability of this? Well, this is a viable refinery because the toll payers, Alberta is a 75% toll payer and Canadian Naturals the other 25%, they've agreed to pay tolls adequate to keep this thing going essentially for the next 40 years. And so the, the toll payers will lose money if the differential is narrow, but the refinery will keep going because the contracts are so ironclad that there's no way for them not to work. Interesting. And I mean, I, I guess, as you pointed out, the demand for diesel is not going a, a away anytime soon. So, so there is that. But I don't know. I mean, is this likely the last refinery we're going to see built in Alberta? You know, at the time when the cost went from um, $5 billion to it was 8.7 for quite a while and ended up being around 10, that seemed like a holy cow moment for everybody about this is just so, such an expensive uh, piece of equipment, they couldn't see a way to build another one. I put that in perspective sometimes by, by looking at Trans Mountain, which is at the end of the day, a pipeline, not a you know, big refinery with all the complexity of a refinery. The last cost overrun on Trans Mountain was more than $10 billion, taking it from its original $5 billion up to over $30 billion. So any big project right now, people have to be super careful about what they're doing, um, you know, the legal status, the consultation status, all the things that go into building something. Because if you, if you blow your budget, you've locked in low or negative returns for many, many years going forward. And maybe it'll take time still to to really answer the question of was this all worth it? Like if we decided early on that that it wasn't and this didn't exist, there would be a downside to that scenario. There's you know there's some risks and downside to this scenario. Would it be is it fair? Can we you know evaluate that big question at this point? Well, I think there are some things that we've learned um, through this whole process. Like one of them is this technology that's used in this refinery has a gasifier which takes very low quality um, stuff that can't get refined easily, it turns it into, um, um, gasifies it to make fuel, and it, it captures the CO2 at that point. And so CO2 capture was built into this refinery right from the beginning, and it's going into the Alberta carbon trunk line and going now into enhanced oil, enhanced oil recovery. So that's part of the whole process of proving out that carbon capture and storage can work in Alberta. The Quest project is another big one of those. Weyburn in Saskatchewan is another one. So, so there are things that are going to be vital to the future of our oil sands industry and other industries like you know um, Dow Chemicals Plant and, and things like that, where we've been able to demonstrate, yes, we can do carbon capture and storage. Yes, it can be very effective. We can manage the costs. We can manage the reservoir risks. And that's an important benefit that comes from this that's much beyond the, the dollars and cents of the, of the differential. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here, Richard. Appreciate the insight on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Take all care. the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Richard Masson, uh, chair of the World Petroleum Council of Canada, member of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, and yeah, found himself in the midst of all of this back in 2021 when he was head at the uh, APMC, which, as uh, the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Commission, was tasked with 
uh, negotiating this 50% equity share in this project. So a lot of financial risk and a lot of financial exposure to make this happen. And some pretty, as he says, ironclad guarantees that ensure that uh, the owners uh, of this, this refinery are, are going to, to profit. Because in, you know, in this area, profit margins can be thin. And there's a lot of refining capacity in North America. So was it all worth it for Alberta? I don't know. That's a, an interesting question. But it has cost us a lot. So did it have to be that way? I mean, that's the other question. Now, what can the Alberta government do at this point? Again, something else that this premier inherited. The idea that she would be looking at options, I mean, that's good. If we could sell the stake in this, that would also be good. I think as Richard Masson says, it might not be that likely. We'll see what happens. Uh, text here uh, from Mike says, let's not miss the point. No government should use public money to go into business. The Fed should never have bought Trans Mountain for $4 billion and then spent another $27 billion to not complete the project. Well, it is almost complete. When we talk about that differential, the completion of that pipeline is going to make a huge difference. I would, I would say there's a valid point there. The difference is that we needed Trans Mountain, uh, that it wouldn't have happened. It would have gone under if the government hadn't bought it. But otherwise, the principle is sound. You know, there, there should be an economic case for these projects, and the private sector should do it. If there's obstacles or barriers government has in the way, then get those out of the way. Address that. Uh, but yes, if there was a case for building a, a new refinery, then the private sector should have seized that opportunity. Welcome back. Uh, the federal government certainly remains focused on uh, reducing tobacco use. So we saw the policy introduced this past year where we're going to have uh, warning labels on individual cigarettes. There's been talk about Canada fo possibly following in the footsteps of some other countries by basically continually raising the smoking age to kind of phase out illegal cigarette sales. Uh, but, but look, I mean, you know, there, there may be more effective ways where we can reduce overall smoking. Japan's an interesting example where over the last eight years, cigarette sales have declined significantly. But I, I think among some of the tobacco control realm, there's not a lot of appetite for a harm reduction approach. Now, Japan takes a pretty strict approach when it comes to e-cigarettes. But what's known as heated tobacco products or HTPs apparently made a big difference in, in getting users off of cigarettes in Japan. Now, these may be coming to the market in North America in a big way. Philip Morris has invested a lot of money in developing uh, these uh, devices known as IQOS, which essentially heated tobacco products. So there could be a regulatory and policy fight around all of this. But joining us to talk about you know, whether this is another potentially effective harm reduction tool, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, David Sweener, uh, adjunct professor of law at the University of Ottawa, someone with decades of experience in tobacco regulation. David, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, great to be on the show again, Rob. We appreciate this. So what do we need to know about these uh, IQOS or, or heated tobacco product devices? Well, the, uh, the key takeaway from, uh, from Japan, which is written up extensively in the current issue of um, Reason magazine, uh, is picking up in the data showing that cigarette sales in Japan have fallen by half in mm -hmm. just seven years with the introduction of these products. In that, without the government doing a whole lot to try to push the market in this direction, uh, not allowing any other lower-risk alternatives to cigarettes, not using tax policy and regulatory policy and massive information campaigns to try to see how rapidly they can reduce cigarette sales, they've still seen cigarette sales fall by half as 
a lot of people in Japan who were smoking cigarettes have now switched to this alternative. I mean, you know, given that success, you think Japan would be held up as a model of, of how to, to reduce tobacco use or, or cigarette sales, but we don't hear a lot about that experience. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I mean, there certainly should be an awful lot more curiosity, and not just about Japan, but other countries that have seen similar results by using an alternative product. So Sweden has now got smoking rates down to about 5%, massively lower than Canada, mm-hmm. and it's because they have a product called Snus. It's an oral product that is a very, very low risk. Let's replace cigarettes. Norway reduced cigarette sales by half in 10 years by allowing snus into the market. Uh, Iceland now has virtually eliminated smoking in people under the age of 40 by offering alternatives. And their their overall market, again, they're down to about a 5% smoking rate. Those examples are largely ignored by people who take an abstinence-only position because they're saying people have to stop using nicotine in any form. Uh, And for them, somebody using cigarettes is probably seen as preferable than them using nicotine in a way that causes little to no risk. Because as long as you're smoking cigarettes, over half of them are going to die, and then that gives them a big incentive to follow the abstinence-only agenda. So Mm -hmm. it's the same argument as we've had on drugs, as we've had on uh, sexually transmitted illnesses. We we used to have on automobile use uh, that... You're battling a moralistic view of it is sin, Uh, and if it's sin, you certainly don't want to encourage it by making the penalty less. Uh, And in place of that, we we could take a pragmatic public health approach like we have done historically on so many other goods and services and behaviors to say, I don't really care what it is you're doing. I just want to reduce the risk as much as I can. Here are the options that you have. Right. Now, and I think, though, you know, those those critics would say, look, Philip Morris is not interested in, you know, health policy. Right. I mean, they're they're interested in their bottom line. And and should we trust them when it comes to, uh, you know, them trying to find replacements for cigarettes? So if if Philip Morris or companies like that are in the market of heated tobacco products, how relevant is that? Well, I I think there's reasons to be skeptical about any company that, you know, whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. So you look at the science, but you also look at the the environment here. Philip Morris didn't say, we've decided we're going to do this because we think we can make more money off cigarettes. There's no way a cigarette company is going to make more money off alternatives. Cigarettes are just an incredibly lucrative business because we've allowed them to just keep increasing their prices to the point that cigarette companies, you know, make something like Apple look like a a, a really poor margin business. Uh, There's no companies in the world to get anywhere close to the profit margins of cigarette companies. They're getting into this because they're forced to, because we're startup companies with things like uh, vaping products and uh, oral tobacco products that consumers wanted to move to, because consumers, given a choice, are saying, I'd rather use something that isn't going to kill me. So competition forced them to move into this. Once they started doing, doing that, you had a lot of people saying, aha, tobacco companies are trying to do it, we better ban it. Yeah. But when we restrict these things, all we're really doing is protecting the cigarette market, which we've done in Canada and they've done in the United States and many other countries. There's countries that have simply banned safer alternatives to cigarettes. And they claim that they're somehow fighting the tobacco industry when what they're really doing is preserving the cigarette companies uh, and preserving an incredible death toll, which is over 8 million people a year are dying globally as a direct result of smoking cigarettes. That's the thing. It's not to say that e-cigarettes or heated tobacco products shouldn't be regulated at all, but it seems like we're doing ourselves a disservice, right, when we treat them and regulate them exactly the same as cigarettes. Yeah, or in, in some cases, we, we've hugely disadvantaged these products so that right. Canada, they're, 
there are products on the market that are significantly less hazardous than cigarettes, but it is illegal for the companies to tell consumers that. And when we look at surveys, it's something like only 3% of Canadians believe that vaping products are significantly less hazardous than smoking. And there's no question, they're massively less hazardous than smoking. Smoking is just incredibly dangerous. But the public doesn't know, the companies aren't allowed to tell them. You know, in a country with our charter of rights on you know, freedom of speech and right to life, we still have a federal government law that says it's illegal to tell people about this. So how can people make a better decision if it's impossible for them to get the information they need to do that? Uh, so we've ended up with you know, really strange policies that are perpetuating an epidemic rather than the sort of regulation that we've used historically in moving to things like safer food, safer automobiles, reducing the risk of the transmission of AIDS, uh, safer airplanes, uh, buildings that are less likely to burn down or fall down. Whenever we see risks, we try to reduce them. Right. And we use intelligent regulation. We use measures to try to uh, prompt people to move to the safer activities. We put constraints on the more dangerous ones so that the market is actually aimed at pushing people toward the, the less hazardous behaviors, the less hazardous products. And in this case, we've done the opposite. And it's our leading cause of preventable death, and, and it's something that can be really easily dealt with, and that it's the smoke that's killing people. It isn't the nicotine. It's the nicotine that they want. You know, can people who need or want nicotine get it in a way that isn't going to kill them, isn't going to harm the people around them? We can deal with total cessation, the abstinence-only stuff after that. Mm-hmm. But can't you at least get people to, to no longer be dying in such huge numbers as a result of what's essentially just a unnecessarily really dirty delivery system for nicotine? Well, and, and the difference with heated tobacco products is that they do contain tobacco or, or I, I guess something similar to tobacco, right? So we know vaping doesn't contain tobacco, but what about the potential health risks of, of heated tobacco? Where, where does that factor in? Scientists who have looked at it are saying that, you know, and even the uh, Food and Drug Administration in the United States saying that these products are approved as, uh, as being a, a lower exposure product to all the toxins that are in cigarettes because there's no burning. It's right. the burning that causes the problems. It's the, the inhaling the products of combustion is what's killing people. So there will still be residual risks, and the view is that these heated products are, are likely to be more hazardous than vaping. But we have a long history of people using nicotine, even from tobacco sources, with very little, if any, uh, health consequences in Sweden uh, with their snus product. We have over a million users. It's, it's been a big market for decades. And we really can't see a difference in, in health outcomes for the people who are long-term users of snus compared to people who have never used tobacco at all. But instead of saying, my gosh, we ought to offer these alternatives to other people, We've ended up with things like anti-tobacco groups in Canada who have put the taxes on products like snus so high that they're non-competitive with cigarettes. In the European Union, they banned snus in countries outside of Sweden. And it's, again, this abstinence only that we want to prevent people from using nicotine in any way. Mm-hmm. And if we can't stop cigarettes, we can at least stop people from getting safer alternatives. And that is totally uh, opposite to what we would usually do in a rational public health environment. You would think so. We'll see what this year brings us on this front. Professor Sweener, thanks again for the insight here this afternoon. Appreciate you make some time for us. Really great time.
talking to you again, Rob. Likewise. All the best. Take care. Uh, David Sweener, uh, professor, uh, adjunct professor of law, University of Ottawa, has mentioned decades of experience uh, in the field of tobacco regulation. In fact, uh, co-authored a study in 2020 analyzing tobacco sales in Japan and looking what happened to cigarette sales after these heated tobacco products were able to enter the market. Now, they, they are sold in Canada, these products, but it's, it's been a pretty niche market. Like I say, that could start to change uh, in the months ahead if, uh, you know, these companies are able to get into the U.S. market and to really start, uh, I guess, trying to get these products uh, into stores and on shelves. So that might put a little bit of momentum behind this. Uh, so it was back in September, Philip Morris uh, unveiled this, what they call a zero tobacco stick with these uh, IQOS devices. So uh, they say it's not nicotine. It's uh, a different kind of uh, product similar to, to nicotine, or rather to tobacco. Is one of, they do contain nicotine. Uh, but yeah, the tobacco is a little bit different than what would be in a cigarette. So this is meant to try to be in line with, with regulations in the U.S., Canada's population has been growing quite rapidly, it seems set to continue to do so in the years ahead. So what's the impact of all of that? In the longer term, and the idea of expanding our tax base, uh, finding, you know, younger skilled workers, so we're going to need all of that. And in the meantime, though, you know, there's certainly some, some demand pressure that this all causes. That's especially true on the housing side. We're really not keeping up. Not anywhere close, unfortunately, to building the amount of housing to meet all of the demand that's there and will continue to be there. So there has been some pressure on the government to reconsider uh, all of this, this influx, uh, you know, in particular on that side, to slow that demand down so that there's not too much pressure driving up prices. But here's the problem that we kind of boxed ourselves into a situation where, you know, reducing all of that could have an impact as well. Uh, even when it comes to removing uh, temporary uh, workers, non-permanent residents, that some sharp reductions in those numbers could exacerbate Canada's economic slowdown. The expectation will have a mild recession in the first part of 2024 here. So that's the warning uh, from a new report from Desjardins Economics. Joining us uh, to talk more about it is the uh, author of that report, Randall Bartlett, is Senior Director of Canadian Economics at Desjardins, desjardins.com slash economics. Randall, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. And we've certainly seen a lot of growth in, in Canada's population recently, and I think a lot of that growth, we just kind of take all these categories, refer to it as immigration. But I guess it's important to make some distinction because it looks like a lot of this growth is coming from what we refer to as non-permanent residents. Yeah, that's right. Um, when we look at newcomers coming to Canada, like we broadly break them into uh, into two different groups. One of which are permanent residents. So those are you know the the immigrants who are coming through the economic stream, or you know we think of uh, refugees and asylum seekers, that sort of thing. And then they're non-permanent residents. So I know folks uh, out there will be very familiar with the temporary foreign worker program. Those right. folks are uh, non-permanent residents as well as foreign students. And so uh, recently, uh, last year, and uh, you know we expect going forward as well. Well, uh, the, those folks made up uh, the bulk of the newcomers coming to Canada. So they really were about three quarters uh, of the newcomers uh, coming here and really driving Canada's population growth. And to what extent is that growth, uh, you know, contributing to Canada's GDP growth or maybe to some extent even propping up some of Canada's recent GDP growth? 
Well, it's interesting because when we look at uh, newcomers coming to Canada, particularly non-permanent residents, uh, most of those people are coming here at the request of employers. So if you think back to 2022, we're coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, the job vacancy rate at the highest level on record. And so uh, there there was a lot of need uh, for workers at that time. And so employers took advantage of... uh, of uh, one program, uh, the International Mobility Program, which had very a very low bar uh, to get over to bring uh, folks into Canada. And so a lot of people came in through that program to meet uh, an immediate labor market need that we had in the country. Um, so that was that was a big part of, uh, of the, 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 the rationale for folks coming to, uh, to Canada to work. The other foreign students and uh, those, those kids have really started to make up a, a large part of uh, the revenue base that funds uh, post-secondary education in this country. So there's been talk about whether some of this needs to be curbed because, you know, this rapid population growth does create that demand. Certainly when it comes to the housing sector, it's it's pointed to as, as one of the factors in driving demand. So we, we talk a lot about that side, but what this report kind of drills down on is the other side of that, right? What are the risks uh, of intervening here? What are the risks of curtailing those numbers? Well, that's it. I mean, it really is a tough balance to strike. Um, given the role that... Uh, uh, non-permanent residents are now playing in the Canadian economy and in the Canadian labor force, sh- shutting the door uh, to, uh, to temporary labor uh, from abroad at this point would uh, deepen what we think is, is going to be a mild recession uh, in the first half of 2024, it would certainly deepen that, make it longer, and we think would uh, um, uh, put a bit of a cap on the, uh, you know, the extent of the rebound as well. Um, and so, you know, it is that tough balance to strike where we don't we, we don't want to exacerbate any economic weakness that we're going to have in the Canadian economy this year and next. But at the same time, we need to recognize the fact that having this explosive growth in, uh, in the Canadian population, growth to the highest level we've seen since the 1950s, um, really is putting pressure on other parts of the economy, like the housing market, um, like uh, government programs such as health care. And so uh, we need to make sure that uh, you know, we're striking a balance uh, between uh, those, two, uh, those two parts of the economy. How much of this is happening or will unfold sort of naturally, right? With a slowing economy, maybe there's less need to to bring over temporary foreign workers or just other reasons why, you know, they might not be coming in the first place. Is, Is that part of this, though? Yeah, that's absolutely going to be part of it. As I mentioned, we think there's going to be a short and shallow recession in the first half of 2024. That's naturally going to reduce demand for labor broadly, but particularly um, uh, temporary labor. And so we think that's going to, you know, naturally, you know, cool some of this population growth that we're seeing. We're also starting to see the federal government is tightening up um, some of the requirements for non-permanent residents to come over. They announced some new measures in the uh, latter part of last year around uh, around foreign students. Uh, and going forward, they may, uh, again, require uh, that there's some sort of uh, labor market impact assessment uh, that needs to be done uh, for people coming in through the International Mobility Program, as there is currently for the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. And so we could see a combination of those, just the natural cooling of demand given the state of the economy, as well as some uh, modest tightening on the policy side as well. It's interesting because this report looks at different scenarios in terms of, you know, what Canada's population growth might look like in, in the coming years here and, you know, what the impact of all that is. And, and there's some different scenarios mapped out here. But, I mean, it does speak there. There is, despite, you know, the, the sort of overall targets that we understand the government has, I mean, what, what degree of uncertainty is there? Oh, there's a significant degree of uncertainty around uh, particularly non-permanent residents. Now, when it comes to permanent residents and the immigration targets the federal government uh, has established, uh, they've done a 
pretty good job of actually meeting those targets. And most of the folks coming in uh, through the, 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 the traditional immigration streams are economic immigrants. We know that they uh, find employment quickly. They tend to have high earnings, that sort of thing. Um, but the uncertainty really is around the non-permanent resident program because it is a function of economic conditions uh, as well as, you know, what's happening in terms of post-secondary institutions and the demand uh, for revenues uh, with, within those uh, organizations. And so uh, there, that really is where the uncertainty is. And uh, right now it just seems like the gates are, are wide open. And so there's no real uh, con- constraints that are being put in place around admissions of folks uh, through, those, uh, through those programs. You did mention it, and you know, it's a bright spot here that, that newcomers to Canada are largely employed, they are finding work. I mean, we, we saw some not exactly, uh, you know, exciting job numbers uh, just recently. Things seem kind of flat on that front. Um, but, you know, I mean, is, is there still, I mean, are we still dealing with job vacancies? Are, are newcomers still finding those, those roles? Yeah, job vacancies are the job vacancy rate. So that's sort of, uh, you know, the number of job vacancies for labor demand that's out there. Um, You know, it's getting pretty close to back to its uh, pre-COVID average. And so a lot of that, um, a lot of that demand uh, is being satisfied. It's interesting at the same time, we've seen the unemployment rate tick up slightly this year, but it's been pretty modest given how, given the boom in population that we've seen. And so, um, you know, going forward, we're expecting to see that, um, you know, some of those newcomers may have more trouble finding work than they had in the past, given a lot of that demand uh, has been satisfied. But again, given the temporary nature of it, um, a lot of it, uh, a, lot, a lot of the population growth will probably start to come off, especially from uh, those non-permanent residents, just as there just isn't going to be that same labor demand during a period of uh, economic weakness. You mentioned the, the expectation that we're going to see a recession in the first part of this year. I mean, are, are we already in that? Uh, it's a great question. We have a piece coming out on this next week. We're going to be digging into it. And we don't think that we are currently in a recession in Canada. Uh, there are a few reasons for that, and I'm happy to chat uh, more detail on that topic specifically and in, in the future. Um, just we haven't seen the consistent economic weakness uh, that we would expect to see, and we are expecting to see the Q4 uh, real GDP growth when it comes out is going to show uh, that we did gain the Canadian economy did gain some ground in the final quarter of 2023. But uh, in the first part of 2024, we do expect a, a, a mild recession um, in large part because the fact that uh, we are um, we are seeing that interest rates continue to weigh on the Canadian economy. We've seen that consumption has been pretty soft in the Canadian economy. We are expecting we are seeing uh, weakness globally, which is going to weigh on uh, Canadian exports as well. And so, uh, all we are expecting to see that downturn to be very broad based, but um, really something that's going to be relatively modest and uh, something that will be fairly short lived is we do anticipate that the Bank of Canada will start cutting interest rates by the middle part of uh, this year. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems if nothing else. I mean, you know, growth is, is pretty flat. You know, we've, you know, we've sort of been flirting with recession, but I guess maybe the fourth quarter, as you say, could be a, a little bit uh, on the positive side. But it is an interesting contrast. I mean, you know, things seem to, to be growing much uh, more robustly uh, south of the border, the American economy. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, one of the reasons that uh, we see for that is just that Canadians are saving uh, at a very, very high rate. Uh, despite the fact that we have high interest rates. And a big part of that seems to be the fact that, you know, Canadians are getting the message that at 
at mortgage renewal time, uh, their monthly payments are going to be going up. Canadians seem to be uh, squirreling away uh, cash um, be in preparation for that uh, that eventuality. Um, additionally, I mean, the, in the U.S., they just uh, they don't have the same sort of payment uh, monthly payment shock that we have here in Canada because um, thirty-year mortgages are so prevalent there relative to uh, relative to Canada, and so uh, they just don't they, they can they can lock in to a predictable monthly payment uh, for a much longer period of time than Canadian households can. Really interesting. Uh, much more on all of this, uh, Desjardins.com slash economics. Randall, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for being with us. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Thursday afternoon. Like I said, we'll get to more of your phone calls here this afternoon, 403-974-TALK. As we enter 2024, and I mean, it's certainly going to be a big election year in our neighbor to the south. Um, but what is the state of global democracy? There will be 50 or so countries this year holding national elections. But that doesn't necessarily mean those are all free and fair elections. So there, there's been concern, I think, in recent years about the erosion of democracy now, the report put out last year by Freedom House, their annual Freedom in the World report, so this is the 2022 data, uh, finds that the number of countries suffering declines was the lowest in 17 years and nearly matched by the number of countries experiencing improvements. So is there maybe a, a glimmer of hope here when it comes to, to global democracy? I guess we'll see what uh, transpires uh, over the next 12 months here. But joining us uh, for some thoughts on, on all of this, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Yana uh, Gorokovskaya, uh, Freedom in the World Report co-author, also a research director for strategy and design at Freedom House, freedomhouse.org. Yana, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Happy to be here. I'm actually Canadian. So, oh, yeah. um, the well, last, fantastic. Yeah, although I'm speaking to you from the U.S. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. Uh, listen, I mean, when you, you're asked that question, you see that question asked, right? What is the state of democracy? Uh, how do we need to come at that question, you know, in the first place? Well, I think there's, you know, a couple of different things to look at. So certainly elections are a big factor and there will be quite a few really important elections. The U.S., Mexico, India, of course, coming up. Um, but then there's also the absence of elections. So what we saw in 2022 were coups, military coups in the Sahel region of Africa that deprived people of an ability to uh, have an elected government. We saw more of the same in 2023 with the coup in Niger and Gabon. Um, but then there's also repression of journalists. And, of course, um, you know, you need media freedom to have free and fair elections yeah. and attacks of, of other kinds on people's uh, rights and freedoms. Right. And I mean, that's part of the work you do. I mean, Freedom House, the Freedom in the World Report, it's very comprehensive, right, with with scores uh, assigned to each country and a lot of detail on, on how the, those scores are compiled. So you know, it's it's difficult to do a complete apples to apples comparison, I guess, for every country. But this is, you know, a pretty good guide, I guess, and especially in terms of whether countries are moving in the right direction or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's always challenging to compare a country, you know, the size of India to, um, you know, some smaller nations or across regions and contexts. But I think the advantage that we kind of uh, try to build on is that we're using the um, the Universal Declaration on uh, Human Rights, and which has uh, been widely adopted by most countries in the world. And so it gives us kind of an equal standard to look at. Did you sense there was any kind of a, a COVID effect or at least how governments responded to the pandemic? Did that have an impact on, on democracy or freedom worldwide? Oh, absolutely. So part of what we saw in that last report was a rebound 
from a lot of repression that had to do with COVID restrictions. Mm. And of course, some COVID restrictions are, you know, um, totally legitimate and happen in democracies. But yeah. what we also saw in uh, 2021, 2020, was that authoritarian governments basically abused the uh, COVID emergency as a way to repress people's freedoms. And a lot of that didn't let up for years. So there were still um, attacks on uh, the press, attacks on movement, attacks on the right to protest that were kind of um, you know, under the guise of COVID restrictions, essentially. But I mean, you know, the erosion of democracy or, you know, kind of the, the creeping of authoritarianism, that, that began well before uh, the pandemic. I, maybe the economic downturn, you know, had, might have had something to do with that. But what were some of the contributing factors then where we're starting to see that, that erosion of democracy? Well, I think one thing builds on another, you know, attacks on um on democracy by authoritarians are often amplify things that people living in democracies already feel about dissatisfaction with institutions and voter apathy and this idea that democracy doesn't deliver for everyone equally. And so the attacks from outside often amplify um, those same messages. And so these things are kind of hand in hand. And then as people lose confidence in, uh, you know, democracy and electoral institutions, they become more susceptible to disinformation, to interference, and it's kind of a vicious cycle. Uh, as we look at, at, you know, some of the, the elections on the horizon, I mean, Taiwan is an interesting one this weekend. And maybe that's, you know, an yeah. example of where there's kind of a fragile democracy where Taiwan very much is. But uh, there, there's a very large threat that, that looms large over their system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Taiwan, I was um, just there a year ago. It's, it's a really vibrant democracy with a homegrown democratic movement, but it is under constant threat. And we saw reports just at the end of the year in December of um, the Chinese Communist Party actually meeting to plan how they would try to influence the outcome of Taiwan's election um, by promoting and sort of stoking fear about what would happen if a more um, independence-minded government came into power, what that would mean for people's safety. And of course, that's, that's a serious thing for people to consider uh, who live in Taiwan. You know, the other end of the scale, I mean, there's a presidential election set for Russia coming up in, in March. I mean, I saw a story the other day where, you know, some of these uh, people who have been put up as candidates for presidency are making it clear that, look, we don't have any chance of winning. Uh, we're not trying to, to undermine uh, Vladimir Putin anyway. It's, it's a very surreal kind of specter, but it speaks to just how much things have eroded in Russia to um, have a, an election where there's really nothing free or fair about it. I mean, what, what does that tell us? Absolutely. That that election is a sham. That's a rigged election. That is basically holding a contest in which, sure, you're able to cast a ballot, but that that casting of the ballot makes no difference to the outcome. There is no there are no independent candidates. The entire legal system is designed to keep people off the ballot. There is no freedom of uh, expression. There's no free media. And the the war that the Kremlin has been waging on Ukraine has only intensified that. It's intensified the repression inside of Russia itself as the Kremlin tries to silence people who are opposed to the war and who are opposed to the government. What about the uh, election later this year in the United States? Uh, you know, it's been a shining light for democracy. I think there's been some concern about, uh, you know, the, the health of the strength of U.S. democracy. Is there a lot at stake uh, this year in, in the U.S.? 
Oh, I think so, definitely. A lot of it, I think, depends not so much on the outcome of the election, but in it depends on how the election is run. You know, there's some concerning things. There was just reporting recently about the rise in political violence, especially directed against um, people who work in the electoral system right. um, and judges and others. And, and that's really frightening because the system only works well if there are people who are able to do their jobs and to do their jobs impartially and to do their jobs safely. Um, and when that is under threat, um, you know, that's a really devastating thing for democracy. And I think the other interesting thing will be the, the role of the, the courts in this upcoming election. I mean, it's not the first time that the Supreme Court has really played a significant role in a presidential election, but I think, you know, it's the first time for a lot of people who will be voting uh, this year. So we'll be watching all of that closely. Now, the, the latest Freedom of the World report comes out at the end of February, and we'll, we'll see what the trends were for 2023. Do you remain optimistic that as we saw some improvement in 2022 that we can stay on that trajectory? Well, I don't want to give too much away. I don't sure. want to scoop ourselves in our data. Um, I think it's been a difficult year, and I think if you just kind of look at um, you know some of the, the events that have happened, especially, I think, with the issue of armed um, violence, not only you know actual wars, um, but also just the, the influence of armed attacks. And, you know, you can look at the election in uh, Ecuador, which was a good election, well-conducted, but was, um, you know, Several political candidates were killed, um, and really there was a rise in violence. And just this uh, past week, um, a gang actually seized um, a TV station and held it hostage. So, you know, the the threat of violence to democracy, I think, is going to be a significant theme. Well, watch for that. As mentioned, comes out at the end of February. Much more on all of this, freedomhouse.org. Yana, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Yana Gorokovskaya, uh, Freedom of the World Report co-author, research director at Freedom House, freedomhouse.org. Uh, so it, it remains a challenging time for democracy and democracies. I mean, Taiwan's election this Saturday, as mentioned, and you already got China warning about uh, certain outcomes. And I think we're all pretty aware of, you know, what China may be looking at, uh, might be eyeing in terms of trying to take back Taiwan into their sphere of influence, trying to end the idea of a a separate democratic Taiwan, essentially doing to Taiwan what they've done to Hong Kong. So I think we need to to keep a close eye on that situation. But uh, they'll be going to the polls this Saturday. And and what still is uh, a very open and vibrant democracy and a shining light of what really China could be um, if it weren't under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Thursday afternoon, a chilly Thursday afternoon, to say the least. 403-974-8255. Plenty more still to get to here today. Uh, a lot of Canadians uh, these days, um, you know, looking at finding other sources of income to deal with, you know, the financial pressures we're all kind of dealing with through inflation, you know, the cost of housing, all of it. So a second job is one way that people can try to adjust to this this reality. But of course, uh, taking on a second job, you know, can mean some some problems on the tax side in terms of how that income is taxed. But certainly, you know, having a second job speaks to a certain kind of economic necessity, an economic reality. So a new report from the uh, Montreal Economic Institute says governments need to reassess the tax treatment of second job income for full-time workers. Not that, you know, you should get a total pass on that income, but a tax system that better reflects some of these realities. 
And essentially then to have a tax system that restarts the calculation at zero when taxing those second jobs. And what a difference that could make for a lot of these households. So joining us uh, for more, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jason Dean, associate researcher at the Montreal Economic Institute, co-author of this study. You can read more at IEDM.org. Jason, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great. Thank you. It's great to be here. So uh, tell us more about what the, the reality is currently then for somebody who works full time in this country. It would vary from province to province, obviously, but someone who takes on a, a second uh, part time job. Yeah, they're actually penalized quite heavily. Um, for example, um, you know, if you just think of the average worker and they were to take on a secondary job, you could be looking um, well, roughly around, you could be looking at about a quarter of their, these hard-earned, you know, this hard-earned money, extra money to make ends meet being taken away in taxes, which could obviously be much, you know, for them could be used for groceries or paying their rent. So if we were to change that, what's, I mean, first of all, what's the reason why the, the government should, should reconsider this? Well, I mean, first of all, um, I mean, you know, in the, the environment we're in right now, many Canadians are struggling with the rising cost of living. And, you know, many have had to take on a second job. Many are actually considering it as well. And so, you know, it's it, it, in order to be fair, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I think it's not a very good idea to penalize their efforts for simply just trying to, to make ends meet. All right. So if, if somebody's, you know, earning forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, their full time job, so there's a tax rate that applies on that. So that wouldn't yep. change. So someone in that position, though, they take on a part time job, they're earning a bit of extra income on the weekend or uh, on evenings. So under this proposed system, what would change for them there? Yeah, so basically your main job, uh, so we're targeting to people with full-time main jobs, so that nothing there would change, but any earnings in a second job that they take up would be, the marginal tax would be reset. So it's like you're starting at the bottom ladder of the income tax brackets. Um, it's as if the earnings were the first earnings of the year. Right, so it's almost as though in calculating that income, the, the first job kind of, for those purposes, almost doesn't exist then. Yeah, it would, everything would would be the same. But if someone has a full time job and they take on a second job, you know, we feel they shouldn't be penalized. Many of the cases they're doing so to help with the higher cost of living, and so um, you know, we're proposing that the marginal tax should be reset. They they shouldn't be uh, penalized. We're focusing on middle to low income uh, workers. Yeah, I think for the most part we would be. So what kind of a cost then do we imagine that might represent to governments? Well, the, it actually isn't uh, very large at all. Um, the, it's, for the federal government, it would be under a billion dollars. And if we put that in the context of their overall spending on projects, which is projected to be you know, $450 billion this year, it's not very large. And you could also compare it to the... Uh, subsidies, production subsidies of um, mil, you know, a few million more. It's about a billion dollars a year for just one firm for the Korean um, manufacturer, uh, the battery manufacturing plant. So when you put things in perspective, it's not a very uh, expensive, um, you know, the, the revenue loss wouldn't be all that substantial. And it would mean a lot for, uh, you know, workers in that situation. It would provide them a lot of relief. About how much do we, do we estimate? Um, it's for the federal government, it's roughly a, just under a billion dollars. 
No, but in terms of, of the household savings or the individual savings. Oh, it, it, I mean, it depends on the bracket that they're in. For the yeah. average um, Canadian, we're looking at roughly, uh, it could be as high as around $4,500 in Quebec, and for Ontario would be around $2,700. Well, well, yeah, I mean, and that's pretty significant, I would imagine, in mm-hmm. those households. Do you have any idea on the overall numbers of how many workers in this country are in that position where they have a full-time job but, you know, pull in some extra hours or income from, from a, a second job? Yes, I used the labor force survey to figure that out. There's just over 650,000 who have a full-time job and who are also working a secondary job. So it's quite substantial. I would imagine the question would come up. I mean, if you have somebody, say, who earns $50,000 and then gets an extra $10,000 from a part-time job, I mean, that's $60,000 of income. Somebody who earns $60,000 from their full-time job then would would pay more in tax. Is is that fair? I mean, how do we assess that that question? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the person who is um, in a full-time job making the same amount of money they would be working less hours, right? The person right. who has to take on additional work. So there, 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 there would be extra hours worked. I mean, it would be great if we could, you know, help everyone. We're not saying that those people aren't in need, but, um, you know, in that particular case, there would be some differences in the, the hours. So it's not a really perfect comparison. Right. Is, is the starting point kind of the, the, that the first job would have to be a, a full-time job? Would it be a different situation if people were working two or three part-time jobs? Yeah, so the tar- we're, we're targeting um, those with a full-time main job. Those are yeah. likely going to be people with, you know, commitments to a mortgage and, and things like that. I think those are the people who would be m- most needed. Not to say that, you know, there aren't any people with multiple part-time jobs that aren't in need, but actually when you look at the data, many people in multiple part-time jobs are could be, you know, you know students or um, the labor force data suggests uh, many of them too might be just personal choice that they're working these part-time jobs. So there, there's less attachment to the labor market as well for those groups. But again, the, our focus is on, you know, helping those most in need. And I, and I think those with a full-time main job are, are the appropriate target for the yeah. policy. And I guess because we're talking about both provincial and federal tax, we need both levels of government to address this. But I mean, could one yeah. still act without the other? Yeah, they could. So there would be at least some partial relief. Um, it would be great, though, for the uh, provincial governments to also want to, you know, come on board um, with, the, with the policy. And, yeah, that's what we're, we would like to see anyways. Well, I guess we'll see if anything comes to this. It's an interesting idea. Uh-huh. Much more is mentioned. The paper's up at IEDM.org. Jason, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care and have a great day. You as well. All the best. Uh, Jason Dean, Associate Researcher of the Montreal Economic Institute, co-author of this uh, paper, making the argument that we should you know, implement this tax change, recognize why people are, are having to take on a second job and to not penalize them further uh, on the tax side. So they point out, take someone in Ontario working full time, but, you know, kind of a low wage full time job, 35000 a year. You know, the minute they earn a single dollar from a secondary job, there's already a marginal tax rate of 20% that applies. I think that seems harsh. So what they're saying is, okay, whatever, you're earning 35000 a year at your full-time job, then you, you pay the tax rate on that. But now if you're taking a second job, well, we kind of view those dollars separately. So you earned $5,000, you know, working a little bit uh, part-time over the year. Okay, well, we'll tax that as though it was $5,000 of income. So that would be a different kind of calculation. And, and, you know, as they say, 
Uh, you know, in this case, that's someone who could save, you know, as much as uh, $2,700 a year. Uh, they say the uh, changes wouldn't be that much, all things considered. It represent a hit of uh, about $980 million in revenue for the federal government. Uh, so I don't know. Is this something we should consider? And, and is it more of an issue now with the financial pressure a lot of households are facing and a lot of people, you know, turning to part-time jobs to try to make ends meet or try to cover higher bills or higher mortgages. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.